We're finishing a series this morning. I love starting things and ending things, and so I'm counted a privilege to be up here this morning. We've been in a series that we've called What Matters, and uh, lots of ways to take those two little words together, like uh, what matters, or does that matter, or what matters, and, and what we're really doing is talking about uh, stuff that North Point makes a big deal out of. There are some things, uh, b- Bible things, uh, spiritual things, theological things, if you want to use that word, that we consider to be a big deal. It's a Major. And then there are other things that we kind of consider to be a minor. Not that they're not important. They are. But they're just not the things that we're going to uh, go to bat over. It's not the things that, you know, we're, it's not a hill that we're going to die on because we think that uh, you can have lots of different ideas. But on our things that we say are majors, um, that's, that's stuff that we'll, we'll die on. Like those are hills that we think are important enough that we're going to take that battle on that hill. Matter of fact, uh, if you are part of North Point 101, that we'll use language that talks about our majors and minors. We'll talk about these six things again. As a matter of fact, on our website, this is what it says about about these things that we say are, are the things that matter, our majors, the big rocks, is how Rick started talking about this seven weeks ago. It says this, the Bible, as we think the Bible is a big deal, the Bible's a major for us. It says the Bible is exactly what God wanted us to know. This is straight off our website. It's what it wanted us to know about him and about life. And as the source of truth for what we think and how we live, the Bible is how we know God and know life because the Bible matters. It's a big deal. We say God, God matters, God's a big deal. God is the creator of all things, infinitely perfect and existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God matters. We say Jesus matters. Jesus matters. We talk about Jesus a lot. It was a couple of years ago, and we were talking with somebody a few years ago new to North Point, and they said, man, you guys talk about Jesus a lot. We talk about Jesus a lot because Jesus is a big deal. The website, we put it right there. So Jesus is God, came to earth to die in our place in order to pay the penalty of our sin and is waiting to take us, uh, to take those who are pursuing him to heaven to live there forever with him. I was talking with a guy this morning. I didn't, this wasn't planned. It just came up. I was talking to a guy this morning, a, a little older guy. And I, I, I said, hey, uh, how, how's it going? He's like, I, I got about 10 years left, is what he said. And because I'm me, I ask questions that just pop in my head with no filter. And I said, and then what? And he said, and then it gets good. (laughs) What a great answer, right? I got about 10 years left, and then it gets good. Because Jesus matters, and he's waiting to take us to heaven with him. For those that know him, have a relationship, are saved, are pursuing him. Jesus is a big deal. The Holy Spirit is a big deal. The Holy Spirit matters. He's a permanent resident with every believer from the moment of salvation. Provides every believer with gifts for service, with the fullness of God's power to make him adequate for living. Because the Holy Spirit matters. Matters to God, matters to us. People are a big deal. People matter. We have a a, a view on people or mankind, website says. We're created in the image of God, sinned, and are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And last week we started the sixth major, the sixth big deal, salvation. We talked about it last week. I want to talk about it again a bit this week. The, The website says this about salvation. It says salvation is also described as being in right relationship with God. God loved us enough to provide a fix to our broken relationship with him. We believe this fix comes in knowing Jesus Christ in a personal way. This fix is all about knowing Jesus Christ in a personal way. And because salvation matters so much to God, he left us with something that helps figure that out. 
That's what we want to talk about today. I'll, I'll ruin the end in case you tune out at some point. I think that something is the church. And so we want to talk about salvation and what that means for the church this morning. I want to start by dealing with the question, what is salvation exactly? See, salvation is sometimes this word that we throw around in church circles, or honestly, even as an American, because almost every American has some experience with church language, church circles, church world. And so we use the word salvation, and everybody kind of nods, oh. But what if you really had to explain it? Like, I think my daughter was probably five or six when she said, Dad, what does it really mean to be saved? Oh, ask your mom, right? Like, how do you, how do you paint that picture? Like, what, is it, what does it mean to be saved? Like, we, can, we could talk about it in terms like, well, saved from, like eternity in hell, and saved to heaven with Jesus. We could talk about it in terms like that, but, but sometimes that just doesn't uh, grab me in a way that helps me figure out, well, what does that mean right now? Because salvation is for right now, not for what could have been or what is to come <laughs> 10 years from now. But, but we're like, what, what, now what does that mean, salvation? What does that look like? And, and I'm not a guy that always understands words real well, but I really understand pictures. Picture imagery is so helpful for me. And so if someone can paint an analogy or a picture or a metaphor, that's super helpful. And I think, I think the scripture does that for us pretty well. So I want to start in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, if you have the North Point app, open that up. They'll be there. The verses may or may not pop up behind me depending on how well technology is obeying and behaving today but there's bibles in front of you as well ephesians chapter 4 there's a guy who wrote a bunch of uh letters that we call books that are in our bible his name is paul and paul was a philosopher and so ultimately i think paul very often thinks in pictures and i love him for that because it helps me out so much in ephesians chapter 4 this is what uh he says about this this concept that we call salvation. He says, it says, uh, verse 17, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live like the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're always full of greed. Now, pause there for a second. Let's take a breath. Because Paul is describing what you, they, I, once were, was. He's describing what it looked like before. Like, like without, uh, before you know anything about salvation or Jesus or church or, or whatever, like there is this, this reality that you live in. And, and he uses words like, like futile. The, the word futile there is the idea of devoid of truth or weak. Like there is this void in the life, in the person's life that doesn't make sense. Uh, darkness is the idea of blind. There's a blindness. There's an, he uses the word ignorance. It doesn't mean stupid. It just means not knowing. There's a not knowing. There's a blindness. There is this, this, this sense of uh, hopelessness or a void. And so he goes on to say in verse 19 that losing the sense of they, they, they've given themselves over to and he adds some stuff there, but the key is the idea that folks who are living in that reality of sort of a hopeless void, what's the point of life, what do I do with this thing, they will decide what to fill that with. They'll fill it with something. They've given themselves over to something because life demands that we fill our emptiness with something. And so they give themselves over to something, uh, family, or education, or partying, or drinking, or uh, guns, or cars, or golf, fill in the blank, right? 
doesn't really matter what we fill it in with. They will give themselves over to something because life is designed to have meaning and purpose. And without salvation, without Jesus, they will find some meaning and purpose that they'll try to fit in that. It just doesn't work long because none of those things are full enough to give and provide full meaning and full purpose. So Paul says, once you were like that, and there's this giving over to things that kind of just don't matter, don't seem to really work. And in verse 20, he says this, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that's in Jesus. See, you were taught with regard to your former way of life. (gasps) Pause for a second. There's this moment where, where you lived like this, trying to fill that void with whatever popped up because you didn't know any better. But there was this moment where Jesus crossed your path. All of a sudden, Jesus crossed your path. You heard about him. You heard something. You watched a TV show. Whatever it worked, Jesus crossed your path. And you said, yeah, yeah, that makes more sense than what I've been doing. I, that's what I want. Sign me up for that. What does that look like? What do I got to do? What's next? Give me in. I, this is interesting to me. Paul says there was this moment where you were transformed where you're, you're no longer interested in living for that because you've realized there's some futility there. There's a pointlessness. It wasn't really filling that, that, that void in your soul. And so in verse 20 through 22, he says that this, this, this Jesus happens in this moment. Verse 23, you're taught with regard to your former life. Here we go. To put off that old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. It's that moment you understand who Jesus is. And to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This idea of put off, there's this renewing that goes on, and then a putting on. That's a picture of salvation. When we talk about what salvation is, It's not a list of things to do or not do. It is truly a transformation. It's a change. And the whole week I was thinking, wouldn't it be cool if I came up on platform and I'm talking about like, it was like this, but then then Paul uses where he says, put it off. And I started, and I took my clothes off and then there's this moment and then then you put on. And so I put on new clothes and I thought, no, that would not be cool. (laughs) That would be really awkward forever. But that's not that picture, but that's the idea that should be in your head of this idea of it's a putting off and a, and a putting on. Like if I walked out here with these, this, the fireman uniform on with these, these overalls that are just big and bulky and I just started doing my thing and didn't tell you what was going on, you'd be like, what's wrong with Chris now? <laughs> right? And, but then there's this moment where you take this off and you leave it and you step out of it and, because there's been this, this, this connection with Jesus and instead you put on something else. See, my, my, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat this dead horse for a while, so I just want you with me on this, because it's so important maybe that we understand what this looks like. What really is this thing we call salvation? It's this, this choice to put off the focus, the way, the, 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 the trajectory of my life, the things that I had been focused on before, because something happened here that made that unworthy. And now I'm putting on this new focus, this new trajectory, a different way of thinking and living. Does this make sense? Kind of, sort of. I just like this picture because it's helpful to me. Because, because it helps me live on a Monday <laughs> at 2 o'clock. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Like sometimes the language of I've been saved from hell and I'm saved to heaven and I think, sweet, I got 10 more years to quote my friend, maybe more. Right? Sometimes that doesn't give me a picture that I can lock into, but this idea of putting off and putting on 
is incredibly helpful for me. The, the, the person, Paul, who wrote this in Ephesians, he's writing a letter to a church in a place called Ephesus. It's interesting because he wrote a, a very similar thing to a different church, a church in a place called Colossae. And this is what he said in Colossians. That's what we call this letter to the church in Colossae. Chapter 3, he says this, same author. He says, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things, not on the earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ. That's that putting on kind of language. It's like the clothing that you put on. And, and hear me, we're not talking about what kind of clothes you wear, right? Don't leave here and be like, did Chris say that we're supposed to wear the right clothes to church? That is not, we're not talking about, it's a picture. It's a picture of putting on. And so now you're hidden in Christ. You're wearing, I don't know, the Jesus outfit. I don't even know how to put that. But you're putting on, you're hidden with him. It's, your life is now hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you'll also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore. That's the idea of putting off. Like, put to death is a great phrase because it's the easiest way to kill anything. Like, I've learned this with plants and pets. You just simply don't feed them, right? He says, put off, stop feeding that old life, that old trajectory, that old focus, that old system, that old set of clothing. Rather, put that to death, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, evil lust, desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God, God is coming. You used to walk in those ways. That's how it was before you knew Jesus. You used to walk in these ways in the once you life, life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other since you have taken off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge of the image of the creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, uh, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly love, clothe yourselves. I know Paul starts listing things that this looked like because Paul is also an incredible pragmatist. He's very practical, and so he starts listing what this old life looks like. Don't get hung up on the, on the list there. It's not like you put those lists of things you shouldn't be on your wall, and you're like, okay, I can't be those things. It's not a bad idea, but it's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's like, that's what it looked like. You took it off, and you left it there, and now you're putting on this, this new set of clothing. The message version of this passage actually talks about that being an, uh, an ill-fit set of clothing. And we do this weird thing, even though one salvation, this is the picture of salvation, comes and we have this new clothing, this new life, this new focus, this new trajectory that, that we're wearing sometimes. We do this thing where we like take a part off and then we start to try and put this back on. And it's like this is nasty and filthy and has holes in it and smells horrible. And yet sometimes we try and put that back. It doesn't fit right. (laughs) You know what I mean? That's what we call sin. Like when we try to go back to that, it just doesn't make any sense. I have a friend who explains it like, like in this new relationship with Christ, this thing that we call salvation, it's like eating steak all the time. Why would we go back to bologna? (laughs) I have no kale illustration for this because that, never mind. The point being that we've put on, just a moment of humor, pulling you back with me, the idea is that we put on this new trajectory, this new focus, this new way of living, this new set of clothing. That's this picture of salvation. Does that help at all? This idea of what it was, this moment with Jesus, and now it's a whole new thing. It looks different and feels different and smells different and tastes different. It's just 
different in this relationship with Jesus. That's the picture of salvation. Well, it's interesting because uh, the same author uh, that wrote this, back to Ephesians chapter 5, he, he starts to mix metaphors. Paul does this often. He's starting to mix this picture because he's just been talking about this idea of putting off and putting on, and it's so important as Christ followers that we recognize salvation means that we have this new, this new life, this new clothes, this new image, this new focus, this new trajectory. And this is what Paul goes on to say in chapter 5 as he sort of starts spiraling in his own picture image here. It's kind of funny. Verse 25 of chapter four, uh, 5 of the book of Ephesians. He says, Husbands, love your wives. <laughs> Seemingly out of nowhere, right? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her as himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. I mean, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and they care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Uh, however, each one of you must also love his wife as uh, loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So are we talking about, like, like, like uh, husband and wife here, or are we talking about Jesus and church? The answer is yes. <laughs> it's, it's both. Right? Are we talking about uh, how, how Jesus loves his people? Or are we talking about how a husband is supposed to care about his wife? The answer is yes. Paul is mixing this metaphor and he slips in and out of marriage relationship into the church relationship, back to marriage relationship, back to church relationship. And it's this kind of muddy mixed metaphor of marriage. It's so interesting that God uses the picture of marriage to be the 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 the, the the, the picture on the wall of salvation, what that looks like. What does it look like to be saved? What does that relationship with Jesus look like? Paul goes right to the thing of marriage. So this is fascinating to me, because God could have picked a lot of other relational institutions, relational concepts. He could have picked parents and children. He could have picked cousins. He could have picked, I, I don't know, you figure it out. But he didn't. He picked marriage as being the picture of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of this salvation. Where we're able to put off, our chains are gone. I've been set free because I had this experience with Jesus. I understand this is the focus and trajectory of my life. So I've put on a whole new way of thinking and a whole new process and a whole new... That's the gospel, and marriage is the picture of that. My friends who are, are Jesus followers, that you're sitting and we're, we're, I'm talking and you're listening, like Christians, hear me. This is why, why marriage is so important to get right. Like we, we do damage to the gospel when our marriages are a mess. Divorce, broken marriage, marriages that aren't fun, Marriages where they're going seemingly different directions. Those are pictures now that, that, that we are giving to the world of what it looks like between Jesus and his people. And it's the wrong picture. When, when, we, when we allow marriage to go south, we're just giving people the wrong gospel. See, see my marriage with Emily that's a picture that a lot of people are going to see and understand about Jesus and how he cares about his people. And the more I don't care about my wife, the more I minimize her, the more I allow our marriage to go to terrible places, 
I'm marring the image of God. Are, 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 you, are you hearing me? Maybe you don't agree, and I know this is a weird venue because you can't be like, Chris, I don't buy any of that. But, but are you at least hearing the words? Like this is, this is important to me. It's important to God. The idea of marriage is the picture of the gospel. That's why it's so important we get it right. It's why God has such a big, makes a big deal about marriage. And I want to be careful. I'm not saying that there's never a time that, that a marriage might need to end. And, and I, I'm, I'm happy to talk more about that with you. Just give me a call. We'll sit down and chat together because the Bible has a couple of times where, where God says, yeah, I, I get that marriage is good. And, but, but even in those situations, I don't think it ever makes God happy. Because even in the best, of situa- the best of situations when a marriage ends, how does that sentence even make sense? In the best of situations when a marriage ends, it still hurts the image of God in the world. It still hurts the picture that God set out for us to understand this salvation relationship because there's this picture of marriage and Paul is so clear. He, he, he paints this picture. Now, it, it makes some sense to us because at some point before you were married, you were single, right? That's the other option. And some of you are still single and so you're still living this and that's, that's cool. But here's what I think this looks like. Just go with me for a second. You're single and you're living the single life. You do what you want when you want, how you want, with whomever you want, because you want blah, blah, blah. It really is uh, kind of about you, and I don't mean that negative. Don't hear that negative, but that you, you're the person in your life. I mean, that's, you're the one that you have to think about for the most part. You don't have family and all these other components. It's just like you kind of just do what you want when you want. Oh, over time, maybe that gets old, and so you see this girl or this guy, and you think, oh, she completes me, <laughs> right? And so you're like, you had me at hello, or whatever, right? And so you're like, you have this moment, you're like, oh, right? And so you propose, or you get proposed, to and you invite that person into your heart, your life, your world, and you make a commitment to them. I said, no more girls for me. Emily's the one, right? And she said, no more guys for me. Chris is the only one left. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, The only one, right? And so we have that moment where we make that commitment. You're the answer for me. And then there's some sort of public, like a sealing ceremony. We call it wedding, right? And so we have this public typically, or maybe you go just as a piece, you sign paper. Like we have this public ceremony. It doesn't make you more or less married because maybe, you know, you get married. But but every culture over all of time have always had some sort of ceremony that celebrates this commitment made from these two people. And so you put off kind of this old way of life because it's no longer just about what you want, but you live with the other person in mind. Even traditionally, she often takes his last name, signifying this change of relationship. We live with this other person in mind, and often you have to be reminded that you live with that other person in mind. No, you can't spend all your money on guns and golf, Chris. Yes, you do have to check with your wife before planning a week trip with the guys. This makes sense to us, right? Chris's little mirror image of what marriage looks like. It makes some sense. That's interesting because that picture makes so much sense when we talk about salvation as well. You're doing your own thing. You're just kind of living. You didn't know about Jesus. He didn't come across your path. You're just living for yourself, filling that void with whatever you come up with. And that's not working so well over time. You realize it's kind of pointless. Somehow Jesus crosses your path, whatever that looks like, and you decide, yeah, that's for me, that relationship with him. That's, that's what I want. That makes some sense. That, that seems to have worth to it. And so so then there's some kind of ceremony. We'd call that baptism, by the way. It doesn't make you more saved or less saved, but baptism is this, this picture like a wedding ceremony of a commitment that you've made somewhere in your world. And there's this baptism ceremony, and you say, I'm going to put off the way I used to live and put on living with this new focus. And then I need reminded of that all the time because I forget. And so the Holy Spirit provides that role for me, but so do life groups and other people. And they go, remember, Chris, you, you put on this. Remember that? Why are you doing that? And I go, right? That's, that, does this picture make sense to you, the, the image of marriage? 
Paul's so good. I mean, he gives us this image of put off, put on. He gives us this picture we can hang on our mantle. If you're married and you carry that picture in your phone or wallet or mantle and you see that beautiful family picture of you and your spouse and your kid, it's a picture of Jesus and us. It's why God cares so much about marriage. Well, God cares so much about salvation that he left us something to help. We call that something the church. So with five, eight more minutes that I have, here's what I want to do, answer four questions about the church. Because sometimes the church is complicated to explain. Number one, what is it exactly? What is the church exactly? There's lots of talk and thinking in the Bible about the church. The Old Testament talks about it a bunch. But just looking at the New Testament, the Greek concept on it, the church, church, the word literally literally in Greek is ekklesia. And what it means is the idea of a gathering. Often it was used of a mob, which I think is kind of funny. But a gathering of people for an intentional purpose. Like they're unified about a purpose and they gather together for a reason. It's interesting because while that word had no religious connotation to start with, very early as the church began to develop, like in Acts 2 and 3 and 4, that word almost exclusively became used of only this group they called Christians. So the Christians really hijacked this uh, public or secular word, and it became a word that defined that group of people, the church, the ecclesia, a gathering of people uh, together for a purpose. In Matthew 16, it's interesting because Jesus started this whole thing. The church was not some institution that, you know, somebody tried to invent in the second century or whatever. Jesus started this problem. In chapter uh, 16, verse 15, he says this. He's having a conversation with his disciples. He's asking them who people say he is. They're all giving the church answer and Jesus zeroes in on him and says, but who do you say I am? And it says, but but what about you, Jesus asks, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell won't overcome it. This idea that church was invented by God Jesus. There's this concept of people being together for a purpose. And it's interesting because immediately he talks about the power that's part of the church. Like hell's going to try and destroy it, but it won't have a chance. It won't be able to do it. And for centuries, the devil has been trying to destroy the church. And yet there's power there. Jesus says it's not going to happen. In Acts chapter 2, Again, we, we see these pictures of the church pop up over and over again. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost came, it was a festival, Jews celebrated it. It says, They were all together in one place. They're talking about the church, those believers in Jesus. It says, Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire separated and came to rest on each of them. And all were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. We jump to verse 41, and it says, Those who accepted this message, because Peter started preaching this whole long sermon, those who accepted this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000 got added to the church. That day, now that would be a crazy day. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, they're like a group of, uh, there's 12 disciples, there's maybe 100 of them running around together, maybe there's 400 or something loosely attached to this Jesus m- movement, and they're doing their thing, and then Peter's preaching, and 3,000 are like, woo, sign me up, I'm in. That would blow your brain, wouldn't it? 
And this church grows expansively from this moment on. We see constant, continual growth of the church, all believers over all time. But not all 3,000 of these people stayed in this little area of Jerusalem. They all went home. They spoke different languages. They had day jobs. They went home, and the church went there and there and there and there because the church spread out. And they started churches in those places that they lived. They had some people around them. They said, hey, you got to hear about this good news of Jesus, man. He talks about putting off and putting on salvation. It's this amazing thing. It's not like marriage. And so they started talking and Developing churches, and we have church that's also huge and global, but it's also small examples of representations of the church in places. Matter of fact, as the, the New Testament goes on and the writings continue, it's always referred to as the church in blank. They name a place. The church in blank. You would name a place, the local representation of the church. What is church exactly? This group of people gathered for a purpose. Here's the second question, and I don't know if it's a question, but second question. But it's so messed up, isn't it? The church is just a gigantic mess. It's terrible. Especially because historically the church has been such a mess. For example, they've been money and power hungry, early Catholic church, or they've been incredibly violent. You know, you think of the period of history called the Crusades, or they've been uh, complete racists. The church used the Bible to condone things like slavery. Or the church has been incredibly abusive, uh, especially sexually or physically towards children. Or the church has been super misogynistic, chauvinistic. The church has demeaned women throughout history. Is this true? Is this the church? It's just such a gigantic mess. We should just chuck it and be done. Well, here's the reality. Two things. One is that not everyone who claims to be part of the church is really a Christ follower. There are people who are still in this. They've not put off but they show up to church on a Sunday morning or Saturday night or Thursday evening or whenever it is. And just because, because they're sitting in a building and they've opened an app and they're nodding appreciatively when the weird guy up front is talking, that doesn't mean that they know Jesus, that they've gone through this salvation process and put on a new focus. Does it make sense? Not everybody that claims to be part of the church is really part of the church. I used to mess with high schoolers all the time when I'd teach, and I'd say, hey, high schoolers, I'll do this to you guys. Hey, North Point. Uh, the only person in this room that I'm absolutely convinced is saved is me because <laughs> I'm the only heart I know. I don't know your heart. And you'd say the same thing of me. You'd be like, I don't know if you're saved or not, Chris. I guess. But you know what? It's not your problem. It's not my problem. That's God's problem. He knows, right? And so just because someone claims to be part of a church and does horrible things doesn't mean that they're really a Christ follower. Well, here's the second half of that reality, is that of the folks who are Christ followers in church, they're pretty messed up. (laughs) We're a pretty messed up group. We do messed up things. We do wrong. Poor decisions are made. I'm not excusing any of it or defending. I'm saying sometimes wrong happens. But at the same time, please understand this truth. While there were some people in the church who were money or power hungry, there were others leading a reformation to put power and money back into the hands of the people and died for that cause. While there were some in the church who were violent, recognized some of that violence was in a culture of violence in response to the slaughter and defense of innocent men, women, and children that were being slaughtered by rogue nations. While there were some in the church who were racists and butchered the Bible to condone horrendous issues like slavery, there were also others in the church who understood the Bible's clear mandate that all people are equal and fought against things like slavery. Matter of fact, Michigan's own history of the Underground Railroad was largely fueled by church people, sanctioned by the church. 
While there have been some men in history that have waved the banner of church or Bible to oppress women, historically it's been the church that gave honor to women or pointed out the value and affirmation of women. And while unique, certainly are no way inferior to men. And that, by the way, started with Jesus. Jesus was one of the first characters in a culture, a Roman Greek culture that gave very little value to women. Jesus not gave but affirmed value in women. We talk about disciples because there was 12 guys that follow him around, but, but we can never forget that he had a larger crew that chased after him everywhere he went, and it was largely women. Like Jesus affirmed in the church, has there have been people in the church that have affirmed that? Has it always been perfect? No. But it's intellectually dishonest to say that the church has been a backward, homophobic, misogynistic, abusive, violent, predominantly white middle-class institution. I wrote this next sentence. It says, Read a history book. I don't mean to be sarcastic about that. But sometimes it's so simple to get caught up in what we hear in the media about how horrible the church has been. But the reality of the church has been, there's been problems. I'm not saying, I'm just saying, there's also been people who have been part of the church that have been on the side of right, that have been fighting for good and holy things, things that would make God happy. YouTube is flooded with videos like why I hate religion or the church but love Jesus or why I love Jesus but can't stand the church. There's Christian authors that write books like we like Jesus but not the church. Barna, which is a group that does data and statistics on churches and all things Christian, they have created a new category of person. It's called a person that loves Jesus but not the church. They define it as a person who's not attended any church in the last six months. It's somewhat popular in our culture now to slam the church to put it down, to beat it, to say how terrible it is. And I'm, I want to be careful. There has been terrible. But there's also been great and wonderful. And so it's popular in our culture to slam the church. And I just want to put a caution out there because Jesus calls the church his bride. And men in the room, you'll identify. If somebody stood up and started slamming your bride, what do we do? We get violent. <laughs> right? We def- you're with me, right? And so just a caution. I'm not saying we don't point out wrong in a church. We don't call out sin when sin is there. We don't call it inappropriate. I mean, God's calling that out before we would even notice. So we do call that out, but I'm just saying there's a caution when we, when we get caught up in the habit of slamming the church. Here's the third question that we want to answer. Can I have salvation and not be part of a church? Can I be saved and not go to church? Let me answer a question with a bunch of questions. That's a very Jesus thing to do. So I'll answer the question with questions. Uh, can you have a wife and not be married? Can you be an athlete and not be part of a team? Uh, can you be a DeWitt Panther, a Langsburg Wolfpack, a St. John's Red Wing, and not go to those schools? Can you be a runner and not own running shoes? Can you be a carter and not wear plaid on Sundays? I don't know. I just threw that last one in because it was funny to me. Here's, here's, the, here's the answer, ready? This is like lots of degrees, lots of thinking. Here's the answer to can you be a Christian? Can you be saved and not go to church? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, yes, no. I don't know. I really don't know. But I can say that the Bible never conceives of an option where somebody would, would put off the old, have this encounter with Jesus and put on the new and not be connected to the church. Like the Bible doesn't have that as an example anywhere. When people came into relationship with Jesus, it was natural. It was the next step. It was just part of the puzzle where people plugged into then a church. There's something unique about this experience of being part of an active and alive church. Spiritual growth happens best in the context of other people. 
God cared so much about this salvation thing that he left us the church. As messy as it might be sometimes, because it's filled with people like you. Just kidding. People like me, right? It's sometimes messy. But God cared so much he left us the church. Last question. So what do we do with this thing? What do we do with the the church, uh, warts and all? How do we think about this? Four four practicals. Uh, One, I say plug into a local church. Don't just merely attend. And don't attend 27 different churches. You're not plugged in if you're at 19 different churches or six different churches. Or I don't know what the magic number is. I just know that it's really hard to plug into more than one marriage. Right? Plug into a church. And attending doesn't mean you're plugged in. Do more than just show up on something. Plug into a church. Be, pray for your church and other churches. There's no competition. We don't think of other churches as competition. We're all part of the church. Big C, capital, like the church all time. Right? We're part, we love what Redeemer does and First Baptist, Methodist Church down the road. Like, that's great, right? So pray for North Point. If North Point's your church, we pray for other churches as well. Uh, C, I'd say this, make your church better. I don't know what that means exactly. But I know that you're here, if this is your church, for a reason. Make it better. Right? And then lastly, I'd say keep hope alive for the church. I mean, God's not finished with her yet. She still has a vital role to play. Paul, who wrote Ephesians and gave us this picture of the put off and put on and then talked about marriage as sort of the mantelpiece picture of what the gospel looks like, he, he goes on to write to a different group of people, a different a group of churches in, in the book of Hebrews, and he says this to them. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open to us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, catch this, let us draw near to God. God, come close with a sincere heart, full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Catch this next part. Not giving up meeting together. That's church as some are in the habit of doing. Instead, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Ten years, and then it gets good, right? As we see the day approaching, as we see what's coming, like that we would stay connected to this thing we call church. The website talks about salvation. We put it like this because it's a major, it's important, it matters. Salvation is also described as being in right relationship with God. God loved us enough to provide a fix to our broken relationship with him. We believe this fix comes in knowing Jesus Christ in a personal way. And because Jesus cares so much about this, he left us the church. And like a spouse of 60 plus years, weathered and wrinkled and broken as she might be, she's still beautiful. Amen? Let me pray, and we're just going to go live as the church. Jesus, thanks for today. Thanks for leaving us this, this thing. I don't know what to do with it half the time, being part of a church, being in a church. So it's messy. But God, thanks for giving us pictures of what it looks like. Thanks that we can understand salvation and what it looks like to have a relationship with you, putting off other focus, but putting on a focus that's driven towards you and living life with a trajectory aimed squarely at you. Thanks that marriage is a picture of that. God, help us to make our marriages right. Help us to make marriage a picture that you would be proud of. God, let us do that. We need your help. Jesus, so we might live in ways that just model what it looks like to be in relationship with you, to be saved, to have salvation because it matters a ton. Jesus, help us be the church that makes you smile. 
that you might just enjoy us and we live a life of adventure because of it. Jesus, we love you. Amen. Thanks for being here, North Point. We'll see you next week.